You're listening to And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today with an author chat with Aisha Saeed, the author of the Amount Unbound series uh, written in the stars and most recently 40 Words for Love. Um, as always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash books and boba. Um, and if you join as a subscriber, you can have special access to our Books and Boba as well as our monthly Boba chat episodes. But yeah, we had a great chat with Aisha about her book, uh, which is a um, coming-of-age YA romance about two teens in a magical world beset by uh, magical and economic um, calamity. Yeah, Aisha Saeed is an author that I wanted to have on the show for a while, ever since uh, Amal Unbound came out. So I'm really glad that we were able to chat with her, and I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Yeah, please enjoy. Here with Aisha Saeed, the author of the New York Times bestseller Amal Unbound, as well as Written in the Stars, Yes, No, Maybe So, and Diana and the Island of No Return, and most recently, 40 Words for Love. Welcome to the show, Aisha. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, we always love to start our episode off by learning more about our authors. So um, I'd love to hear about your journey. How did you become a published author? Um, yeah. I, and, and, you know, you've interviewed so many fantastic people um, that I was, you know, listening to earlier. And I think everyone has their own journey. And for me, I I really never thought that I was going to be a published author. I, you know, when I was in college, I majored in education. I taught second grade for uh, several years. And then you know, I went to law school. I represented kids in the legal system as a public interest lawyer for Atlanta Legal Aid. And, you know, I always loved to write. That that was always there. But the idea of actually getting published, it just felt so obscure to me um, because, you know, I'm a very, you know, I was a very good student in college and I knew like, this is what you do to to get this grade. This is what you do to get this kind of job. But how do you become an author? It just felt so there wasn't something you could major in and just go do that. And so it felt, it just felt really complicated. And I had never met an author as um, growing up. I'd never had author visits and um, I just had never met anybody who was doing this for a living. And so truly it just came down to, as I was in law school um, and I was writing stories just for me, a friend of mine asked, like, why don't you try to get published? And I told them, I, first of all, I have no idea how to do it. And second of all, it just feels impossible. Like, there's so many um, steps you have to take. Um, I started Googling and I saw you have to have an agent and you have to, agent takes you on submission. There's so many layers to it. And it just felt overwhelming. But my friend said to me, you know, you're not guaranteed to become a published author if you try. That's true. But you are 100% guaranteed not to be one if you don't try. So the worst that'll happen is you'll be writing stories that no one's going to read just like you're doing right now. So just see. And so that that really was um, 
that's really what got me started in wanting to, you know, take my stories from just my own and just for my friends to read to to publication and try to be a traditionally published author. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't all easy once I made that decision. Um, I, you know, I got my agent pretty quickly for my first book, which was a young adult novel written in the stars. And um, she loved the book and she took it out on submission. But then I got stuck in about two and a half years of rejection land where it would go off to editors and I would be told no. And it was, you know, it was very disheartening. And the, the hardest thing about the rejections was that the reasons were, um, and I'm sure this doesn't probably come as any surprise to you, but like a lot of the reasons were, I already have an Indian author on my list. Never mind that I'm Pakistani American or uh, books like these don't sell or, you know, these kind of books don't traditionally do well. And so I was being rejected based on assumptions about how diverse books and books featuring people that look like me did in the marketplace. Um, and, you know, some editors were acting like there's a quota, <laughs> like they already have one South Asian. They can't possibly have more. But what about white authors? <laughs> like how many white authors do you have? And so those were the kind of no's I was getting initially until Nancy Paulson at um, Penguin um, took a chance. And she was truly the last publisher that we were sending it to because it had been a very long time. And we were just pretty much getting ready to trunk the novel and put it away. And luckily she said yes. And then so began my my book career. Yeah. I mean, your debut novel, Written in the Stars, it came out in 2016, if I'm correct. Um, 2015. Yeah. March 2015. 2015. Yeah. OK, so that's like right around We Need Diverse Books. And you're one of the founding members of that organization. Yes. Um, yeah. So like, how did you get involved with We Need Diverse Books and what was your role? Yeah. So so around the time that I sold the book, um, I was talking to my agent and I was just asking her, like, so how does this work now that I'm being published? Am I going to go on tour? What's, you know, what's it going to be like? And she she was like, Aisha, calm down a little bit because your book is what we call a quiet book. And oh, so no. you'll have, <laughs> you, you know that word. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, you'll have a publicist, but you'll probably never hear from her. Just know that they're doing stuff, but you probably may never know. And I found that really odd. And as I said, I didn't have a lot of author friends. I didn't know much about the industry. So I started Googling and I found a lot of articles and statistics um, from Lee and Low Books, CCB, the Children's uh, Council for Book uh, Cooperative, and all these different places about diverse books and how they do in the marketplace and how you know, ultimately, as I kept reading and researching, I kept finding that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Publishers feel like books featuring diverse characters don't sell, so they don't promote them. They don't do well. Then those authors maybe get lucky, publish one or two other books, that's it, and then they're done. And it was all very depressing. And all of it, I've, a lot of these articles that I was reading, I found on the website of Ellen O, who I'm sure you both are familiar with. And um, so I went on Twitter to thank Ellen O for all this information she'd compiled about how hard it is to be a BIPOC author in this um, in this industry. It wasn't what I wanted to hear, but it was important to have my expectations set. And so, you know, I happened to log into Twitter um, back when it was still called Twitter. <laughs> and, um, and I just, you know, I went to go thank her, but I stumbled upon a conversation that was happening about 
uh, this very topic. And at that time, BookCon, which was a book expo in uh, New York City that was held annually, they were having a children's breakfast panel and every author was featured was male and white. And so this was what the conversation was about, about how is this possible? And we all began talking about how you know, this self-fulfilling prophecy about diverse books not getting promoted. And more and more people joined this conversation on Twitter. And we said, how about we take this off Twitter and let's exchange info and let's, let's see what we can do. So we decided to make a hashtag. We need diverse books. And we asked our, you know, publishers and our friend, author friends, you know, please share. We need diverse books because and share why. And we were hoping for two to three day campaign. We were hoping our friend, you know, just to kind of wake up book Twitter and get this conversation started. We had no idea it was going to go viral. It went completely viral. And um, we ultimately got invited to BookCon. <laughs> and uh, we had a, a little room that they set aside for us. And, you know, I remember we were very nervous, Ellen O, me, um, a lot of us, we were just like, we are up against the Kardashians and Mindy Kaling and and I hadn't even been published yet. This was 2014. And I it's just like, who's gonna show up for us? And yet they did. And it was standing room only and people were crying. It was there's so much emotion in that room about this topic of needing diverse books. And after that, we realized we couldn't just be a hashtag. We had to do more to keep this momentum going. And so now you know, We Need Diverse Books is a nonprofit and they have so many initiatives. I'm no longer on the committee on the board, but I'm still a very um, proud and active supporter of everything they do. They're not the first to begin the conversations about diverse books. I think it's really important. Walton D Walter Dean Myers, so many others have come before, but um, I am really grateful for being a part of the people that helped keep this conversation going. Yeah, it's always amazing to just to think about how different things were like less than 10 years ago. And of course, we're not where we want to be, but there are, seems to be a lot more diverse books, you know, at least being published or at least being announced. And that's really great to see as someone who, you know, runs this book club and only reads diverse books. Um, I'm glad <laughs> to see like more books that, that you know, that I'm yeah. interested in. And, you know, as someone who used to run those no diversity panels at events. It's really amazing that people are still surprised or were surprised that like diversity was such like a, a needed issue, right? Like people really cared about that stuff and cared about being represented. And um, how has it been seeing, I guess, the, the change that you uh, were able to stir up in the, in the industry? It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And, you know, I, I am so grateful for everything they've done and, However, I will also say not to be a Debbie Downer, <laughs> but now we're in kind of a different era, I feel like, um, where books are being banned and, you know, school boards are getting um, harassment from a very small minority. I do want to stress um, a very loud but small minority. And, you know, I feel like, you know, when we were when we were starting this organization, some who had come before us who had done this work before had told us they're like, you know, this happens. And then sometimes there's a backlash because people get mad and they don't want the conversations that are coming and spurred. And so, you know, when I see this all happening, I think about the people who've been doing this kind of work for a long time, 
who kind of predicted that this might happen. And it's, uh, it's, that's, that's really distressing to see that, you know, it's, it's amazing that we need diverse books is, is, and we need diverse books is fighting this and they're working on this. Like we're not backing down, but, um, but it is disheartening to see that now we've gone from celebrating to have to be on a defensive posture about diverse books again. Yeah. The reactions always, it <laughs> makes you question like humanity, I guess sometimes, but <laughs> at the same time, like I, I'm sure it's tough that you have to like defend this thing that like isn't even there yet. Right. Like we're not even close to equity or equitable representation, right. but it seems right. like we're already fighting for our, our lives to like keep the small amount of progress that we did make. Right. Right. Yeah, I feel like sometimes people like like you had mentioned how you read primarily diverse books like I do, too. And I feel like sometimes like those of us who are advocates and who are reading these books, um, we can forget the world at large. There's still a lot to do. <laughs> and there's still I mean, when I go to the library, when I go to the bookstore, I, I see I'm like, oh, I'm outside my bubble. <laughs> so <laughs> there is quite a lot to do. There is quite a lot to do. But just the little bit that has been done upset some people. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing this podcast since uh, November 2016. And uh, we do, we cover book deals. And as the years have gone by, we've seen like an increase of uh, emerging writers with uh, publishing deals. But the problem is that they are still a minority, even though we feel like we've grown so much as a community. It's still a very small slice of the pie when it comes to publishing and it can be really hard because you're in like a bubble like you said so yeah yeah, yeah for sure yeah. well that conversation went dark um but <laughs> no, moving sorry still, we're still hopeful though i know we're still know hopeful we're, we're still clear, like yeah. cautiously optimistic but we are also being you know pragmatic we need to know what we're up against yeah we wouldn't um, do this podcast I, yeah. if we didn't you know i know <laughs> yeah and I, I firmly <laughs> It's it's simply a fact that there are more people supporting diverse books than opposing it. It's just a fact by a wide margin. It's just that the the people who are fighting against it are just very vocal and organized. But I don't think ultimately, I truly don't believe they're going to win. But I do think we're in the thick of it right now. I, I hold out hope for the future, but but it's not a fun time to be an author writing diverse books because <laughs> of the, you know... Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. 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 Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your background because it does affect um, writing diverse characters. Did you grow up in a city or a town that had a large diaspora population or were you one of the only Asian kids in your class? <laughs> I grew up um, in South Florida. And um, so I had a pretty big share of South Asian. Uh, there was a pretty big South Asian population. And my parents um, immigrated in the 60s from Pakistan. My dad's an electrical engineer. And so I was born and raised in South Florida. And so for me, I um, I would go to school and I was usually the only South Asian kid <laughs> or non-white kid sometimes. Uh, but then in the weekends, my parents really made a really big effort to just make sure that we remembered our ancestral roots like we would go to get togethers and gatherings with other people from the diaspora and 
to have the food and to share in the language and the clothing. And so, so yes, I had, I had both experiences, I guess, like within my schooling life, I was often the only one, but then on the weekends, you know, we would sometimes drive as far as 30 miles to collect all the different Now there's it's so much more, but back then there were not quite as many. And so, um, so there was more of an intentional effort to, to make sure that we didn't feel like we were the only ones. Yeah, that's really cool that your parents like made sure that you were in touch with your uh, culture and identity. I mean, yeah. it really shows in uh, your previous books like Amal Unbound and Omar Rising. And um, and you've also written picture books. You wrote uh, Bilal Cook's Doll. And um, I, I've noticed that it's not just like YA and picture books, but it's also middle grade. So you're... Uh, catalog is pretty, pretty large. So how does your writing experience differ for each demographic? And is it, is it hard to switch gears? Yeah, I I feel so grateful. Yeah, I've written picture books, um, and middle grade and young adult books. And I feel really grateful that I have, uh, support from my publishers to try all these different areas. I've even co-written books with friends, I've got to really stretch and grow my um, my creative muscles. I've written fantasy. I've written contemporary. I, I tend to follow where the voice is. Um, so for me, for example, Amal, so Written in the Stars was my very first book. It was a young adult book for teens. So when I started writing my second book, I just assumed I was going to write another book for teens. <laughs> but when I began writing Amal and Bound, something felt off about how I was writing it. There was just something. But in my head, I was like, this has to be a young adult book. I'm a young adult writer. And then I sent it to my editor, the book, and I said, there's something not quite, there's something I can't put my finger on about this book that's not working for me, but I need to just send it to you. And Nancy, my editor, Nancy Paulson, read it and said, well, I know what's wrong with it. You wrote a middle grade book. (laughs) And I said, I did. And she's like, yes, this is this voice coming out is very young. And the worldview is very young. And um, this is not a young adult book. And so uh, that was amazing. And I it really opened my mind up to that. You really have to follow the voice. You can tell yourself, I'm going to write this book for this audience. But ultimately, you have to follow where the story is leading you. And so that's how it's always been. And that's why Some stories were just better suited. The voice was a younger child. And so I wrote that. And like I said, I feel so grateful that I've been able to do that. Yeah, I'm always really impressed when authors are able to um, write for multiple uh, demographics because it is a challenge because it is a challenge to get the voice right, because I've read books where. Um, it'll be YA and I'm like, oh, it sounds too young or or like middle grade. And I'm like, I don't know any 12 year old who <laughs> acts like this. <laughs> they they feel very jaded to the world. Um, so that's yeah, where I that's where I feel very grateful for good editors who, who yeah. let me know. <laughs> yes. I'm just impressed that anyone can write a book. So I'm just very impressed by all of you in general. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you you were an edit, uh, you were an educator and a lawyer, and I'm just wondering, like, how did you find the time and discipline to write your manuscript? Like, what were your tricks? I, you know, I think ultimately, I think a lot of authors will probably say this um, that it's it's about it's about a need to write, like for me, and I just had to do. I was writing when I didn't even know anyone would read, and so. For me, it's just not an option to not write. 
That doesn't mean it's always fun, <laughs> but it does mean that I, I do feel that imperative. And so back in the day before this was my job, I just found the time when I could. Um, I would write on the weekends. I would write on holidays, 15 minutes a day. Whenever I could find time, I wrote. But it took a long time. Written in the Stars, my debut, I started kind of noodling it like in college. And I was um, like in 2000. It didn't get published till 2015. So it took a very long time because when you're writing 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, it can take a very, very long time. But um, but it did end up, it did end up getting written. So that's, that's what matters. Yeah. Number one rule on being a writer, be persistent and be patient. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it can be, it can be a long, long journey. I mean, like Min Jin Lee, the author of Pachinko, she said that like, it took her 10 years to write. So I'm not surprised <laughs> that uh, some books take decades to get published. Um, yeah. But you've mentioned that you've uh, collaborated with other authors um, and you were a co-writer for Yes, No, Maybe So and Grounded. I'm just curious, like what like what has been your experience writing as a co-writer as opposed to writing your own books? Do you find one more challenging than the other? It is such a dream to co-write. You get to write half a book or a quarter of a book. And you've written, you know, you've written and all together, put it together. You've made a book. Um, it's really special. I feel really grateful. Um, Becky Albertalli, author of uh, Simon versus a Homo Sapien Agenda and many other amazing books, is a local author to me. We live um, really close by to each other. We have kids the same age who play together. And so, you know, we were we were really good friends. And so when we had this idea, it just, it truly just felt like a dream. And we published the book about a month before the pandemic. So we even got to go on tour together. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I get to go to Portland, Oregon with one of my best friends. So it's, uh, it's really special. And same with Grounded is a story about four kids who get stranded in an airport during a thunderstorm. And that story, it came to me, I had this idea after being stranded myself in a storm and thinking, I bet kids could have a different perspective of this. I bet they could maybe make make something more than misery out of this experience. <laughs> and so, that <laughs> um, I wanted to tell this story from four different perspectives. And I knew that um, I wanted to tell it with other people because there's a lot of magic that can happen when you work with other people and bring in new ideas. I will say that <clears throat> I'm very grateful that both co-writing opportunities were fantastic. They were done with people I've worked with before in other capacities who I admire, who are my friends, but um, you have to be very careful who you co-write with because it's a very intimate process. And it's, uh, like I said, you have to go on tour together, potentially do events together. And so you really, um, it's not something to be taken lightly. And I just feel really grateful for my very good experiences. Yeah. I feel like I can never co-write because I am like a control freak when it comes to work. So... Yeah, I think it really depends on the person and, and like, yeah, probably it's it's really fun because you know when you're writing a first draft as an author, nobody's reading it. You're just sitting there alone writing it, and then when you're co-writing, you have someone who's equally invested, and you can send them memes that only they will get because <laughs> they're working on the book with you, and um, so they're just just as excited for you when you have a plot issue and uh, like helping you work it out. It's, it's such a rare opportunity and it's always a letdown when I go back to 
a solo project. I'm like, I have no one to talk about this with now. <laughs> no one will get it. <laughs> so, yeah. As yeah. someone who loves being on teams, being a co-writer sounds amazing. If I ever become a, a, a author, it will be through co-authoring. I <laughs> and I will not be your co-author because I can't stand working with other people. All right. So um, it's time for our favorite, most basic question we asked our Asian authors on this podcast. But how did your parents take your switch to becoming an author as a career? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because it it took it's not a traditional field right and i and i don't blame my parents for being a bit perplexed um because you know when i decided to become an author i didn't um like i said i wrote on weekends i wrote on holidays but i was not yet published when i quit my job to pursue this and that's a privilege i had cuz my husband had a stable job and i was able to do that um but i remember my parents being baffled they're like what and i'm like well i just i found out i was pregnant i was going to have a baby and i was like this is my time to get the story written and ready to go. And, you know, they are very proud of me. But in the beginning, they were very confused. <laughs> like they would keep like they would introduce me to friends and they'd say, this is our daughter. She's a lawyer. And at this point, I have five books out and I'm not a lawyer anymore. I'm writing books. And I was like, OK, well, I'm you know, I, I write books. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She writes books. <laughs> like I just didn't quite understand it. Um but they're, they are uh, my biggest, I, I say my mom is my biggest publicist and marketer. Like she, she sells it to all her friends. And, yeah, no one can get, be yeah. as much of a publicist than your mom. Because I've noticed this among Asian authors. Like they'll be like, oh, my mom would just like talk to random people in the supermarket and be like, yo, my, my daughter wrote a book. Would you like, would you like to have a copy? I have one right here in like my tote bag. And it's like, Wow. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, it really feels like um the you turn a corner when your parents become like your your next like your secondary editors, right? Like here here's how you can make this better. Here's how I think you can <laughs> exactly. be a better writer. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to move on to talking about your newest book, which is coming out this week. Uh tell our listeners about the book Forty Words for Love. Yeah, I'd love to. So like I kind of mentioned earlier, some books take a long time, like, like Written in the Stars took 15 years. This book was about six, seven years in the making. It took a, it took quite a long time. Um, 40 Words for Love is a story about two teens in a in a land that's like ours, but not but is also unlike ours in many ways. And um, they both grew up on this place in this place called Moonlight Bay, where the water used to be pink and lavender that and the it used to have healing qualities to soothe anxious hearts. But there was a tragedy one day and a young boy died and the economic fortunes of the town evaporated. The, the sea became dark. And as everybody was dealing with this economic up, 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 uh, uh, excuse me, economic turmoil, they um, the locals who <clears throat> the locals started to figure out, like, who why did this happen? They wanted someone to blame. And there were these people called the Golub who live within the forest and who had come and immigrated due to a climate catastrophe from where they're from. And they started thinking, well, they ever since they've come, haven't things slowly started to get worse? Isn't it maybe their fault? And so the story follows this town in crisis and these two teens one who's a local, Yaz, and one who is from this other land, Golub, Roth. And 
they're both best friends and they're both watching their town spiral and they're trying to deal with their grief over all of this and also realizing that maybe they have more feelings for each other than they realized before. So it's it's a lot going on. It's a story. It's to me, it's a story about grief and about um, when things change irrevocably and how badly we grieve wanting things to go back to the way they were and um, and and how that can be very harmful to one's soul and to one's community when we just continue looking back and stop looking forward. Yeah. I mean, your book is just, even that description, chock full of allegory. Like it's <laughs> yes. so many things we can you know, map onto our own culture and our own situation. Um, I was most fascinated by your setting of the world, which is, you know, a small town, a small company town even um, that's in decline, but, you know, infused with like magical and magical realism. Um, what inspired you to create this setting? Um, so I think as somebody, like I'd mentioned, I grew up and when I was in school, I was always the only one, <laughs> often the only and only non-white person. And, you know, you get asked like, what are you or where are you from? And like these questions that are always like, you know, torpedoed at us. And I think those, those have always lived with me, like that question of where are you from? And my husband is from South Carolina and he grew up in a very small town. And, you know, he would talk about how, how it feels, how you feel very singled out, how even when everybody is friendly and nice, like you, there's this part of you that, that, that burden of the minority of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get, if, if I do something wrong, people are going to generalize. And so those were stories that have always been with me. Those are thoughts that I always carry with me. Um, and then one day we were going to Yellowstone National Park with my family and we stopped at a tiny town on the way, population maybe 200. And at the gas station, there was a big sign that said baklava for sale. And we said, what? How is there baklava for sale here? And so we went inside. We met this lovely Syrian woman who'd recently moved. She left um, not due to climate catastrophe, but due to war. And she had been resettled in this tiny little town and she was making her baklavas. And I just kept thinking, what is it like? What's it like for marginalized people to live in these small towns where things can be amazing, but then if things get bad, what happens? And so I didn't want to write a literal story. I didn't want to write a contemporary realistic story. Um, it just felt too close. And um, so I wanted to tell it in this way to get those universal themes across without actually making it about our world. Yeah. And your magical, the magic in your story, it's, you know, you don't overtly tell us what the magic is from the start, right? It's, it's kind of a slow drip. And part of it is, is because the characters themselves don't really understand it completely. It's just something that is there. Can you tell us about how you created your magical system and your the way you explain it um, for the story? Yeah, I was um, I was really inspired by the books that I've read that are um, magical realism. Um, Anna Marie McLemore's books, their books are very inspirational to me and uh, very foundational for this kind of storytelling. And I love um, in magical realism, things that seem fantastical can be just absolutely ordinary. And I, I was just really fascinated by that. And I felt like that was the right way to tell the story. These people live in this world. And so for them, the ocean being pink, for them, the Golub have uh, leaf tattoos that shimmer on their wrists. That's normal for them. And I wanted to just share the story as though, as though all of this was just a given and um, just the way they were experiencing it. And so that was um, very intentional on my part. South Asian um, culture also has a lot of history of 
fantastical things happening that are just seen as every day. Like people just casually say that, oh, I saw I saw a ghost while I was walking home and the ghost looked at me <laughs> and, and I waved at it. And it's just seen as, okay, yeah, that just happened. And so I wanted to make the things that were fantastical in the story just seem absolutely ordinary. And I know that that does risk readers wanting perhaps an explanation of how the system works. But there's so much in our own world that I don't fully understand, like so much so much that feels magical. I just went to Banff in Canada and they have these beautiful glacier lakes that are so bright blue that they just they just um, mesmerize you. And they're just, and sure, I could dig into the science behind it and I did, but um, also they're just beautiful to behold. They just are. And so that's, that's what I was hoping to achieve with... Um, with the world building within the story to make it seem like this is just the world and we're throwing readers into it um, to experience it. Yeah, even though it's uh, fantastical, I found like parallels to, um, you know, experiences of marginalized people like uh, the Golibs, they migrate by going through this magical tree and the tree only opens up the portal whenever it wants. So there's like no rhyme or reason for it. And the elders in the Golib um, community, they always talk about going back as soon as everything is better. And I mm-hmm. feel like that is something that a lot of um, like Asian Americans who have parents who have fled from their country due to um, dire circumstances, like that is an experience where they're just like, okay, but when are we going back? It's been like 10 years. Are we going back? Is the place that you left still the same? Will it ever revert back to uh, the land that you remember growing up in? Right. I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm, my parents immigrated from Pakistan for economic opportunities. They simply this was where they needed to go because colonialism and all those things have affected or impacted, you know, have impacted my home, my ancestral lands. And so they came here for economic opportunity. They're not refugees, but they came for a certain reason, not because they were eager and just ready to leave everything behind, but because they had to. And so Zareen Joffrey, who's the editor of 40 Words for Love, she's also Pakistani American. Her parents also immigrated for similar reasons. And so you know, we had a lot of conversations about that, about about that longing, about how you do need to be somewhere new. And there's beautiful things about where you've come, but there's that longing for what was familiar. And you're right, things change. And that's what the story explores because in that in that um, forest, there are people, the elders who want to go back. But the young people, they haven't, they don't know anything else. This is what they know. This is the, the world that they live in and they don't know where they'd be going back to. So yes, I think it's not very hard to see the parallels to our world within within the pages of the story, for sure. Yeah, and you captured that um, dilemma through one of your main characters, Raf, who is kind of a very familiar character for us, like second generation Asian Americans uh, or child of immigrants, which is who is caught in that hard place between wanting to support his family and wanting to pursue his own dreams. And throughout the book, he is, you know, trying to decide whether he should go to college and like kind of pursue a life in this new land or stay in the small town and like be what his like elders want him to be. And um, I really, you know, even though I was still able to really relate to, you know, as an elder son myself, like his, his plight. 
Yeah. Elder daughter here. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eldest daughter here as well. Man, man, we really carry our families uh, on our backs. So we, we, we not only I feel like we not only carry their like, you know, in, in that practical sense of like caring for the siblings, we carry the emotional labor too. that emotional, like just making sure how everybody's doing and not wanting to hurt people with our dreams. And so I think it's just it is. It's a lot. It's a lot to carry. <laughs> um, but the main story, like one of the main storylines you have in your book is this uh, childhood friends to uh, something more romance. And it's a slow burn. Uh, what was your experience like writing Yaz and Raf's slow burn romance? And how did you go about pacing that? You know, it's interesting. Like I, I said earlier, how I write picture books when the voice tells me this is a picture book story or this is a middle grade story. When I first began writing 40 Words for Love, I thought it was a different title. And I, I thought it would not be a love story. I thought it was going to be just a story about friendship. And then as I wrote it, I realized, uh-oh, they really like each other. <laughs> and he's been in love with her forever. And it was just, I love that when that happens with stories, when you have a plan and then your characters start telling you they don't really see things your way. <laughs> and, um, and so then I was, I decided, okay, this is, this is a young adult book actually. And so it shifted the other way and became a young adult story. And, you know, truly <clears throat> it, uh, the love story is definitely a driving, like a, like a through line for the story, um, for both of these characters. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, I definitely didn't want it. I wanted it to be a slow burn. I wanted it to be, you know, something that takes them time because there's so many obstacles, both within their communities, but also within themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just love childhood friends, uh, friends to more. That's one of my favorite. Yes, no, maybe so with Becky Albertalli also was like childhood friends who reconnect. And I don't know, there's just something so pure about it. And especially when you're growing up in a small town, um, I just think uh, it just felt like a very organic way for the story to go. I do love the visual of you writing this book and then realizing that the characters just really want to kiss. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was, I was quite a bit in and I said, okay, <laughs> all right, back to the drawing board. That's why this took seven years because it did require a lot of structural changes. Um, and because it was also a very different story than I usually tell, I, I mostly play in the contemporary realistic space. Um, I've done some fantasy for like, I've done the Wonder Woman series, but mostly I write realistic contemporary. So this was quite a departure from what I normally do. And then, yes, my characters decided they loved each other. And so I had to go back and go back and tweak <laughs> per their wishes. <laughs> I remember um, Sarah Suk, who's the author of Made in Korea, like she also said, oh, yeah, like when I was writing my book, my characters weren't love interests. They were rivals. And that was it. They become rivals to friends. But then suddenly, somehow in the middle of writing, they started to like each other. And I'm like, seems to be <laughs> um, seems to be a common dilemma that a lot of writers go through when they're writing their YA stories. I find that really funny. Um, you mentioned that 40 Words for Love wasn't the original title. What was the original title? I'm a uh, very basic person. So like my stories tend to start with just the name of my characters or like something very simple. And for this, for the longest time, the title was Moonlight Bay, which is the name of the town they're in. 
And, um, but, but I think, um, because I do write in very different genres, I write picture books in middle grade and young adult. I think <clears throat> Moonlight Bay could have been a middle grade if you glance at it. It could be anything. And so we wanted to really center the love and the different ways that love is explored within the book by making it part of the title. And so there was a line within the book that talked about how there's many different words for love in the goal of language. And so we decided to pull that out as the title, just so that it was a little bit more clear who the story is for. Yeah. And I kind of, I really love that line in the book too, because it reminds <clears throat> me of like a lot of languages that aren't, you know, the romantic languages do have different words for like love and there's different types of love. So, you know, I, I really like that that became the title. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually in, in, in Hindi and I believe in Urdu, um, Pakistani and Indian languages, there's actually 96 different words for love. So I reduced wow. it in the book <laughs> for the goal of, yeah. Um, like I've mentioned, your catalog is very large. You've written uh, so many books now. Uh, what is a theme you feel like you keep coming back to when you're writing? It's interesting. You know, somebody asked me that um, a few months ago, actually. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I have a theme. And ever since then, though, I've been thinking about it. And I I realized there is a theme in all of my stories and they're all about home and about place and belonging. I realized that even with my my picture book, Bilal Cooks All, it's a fun story about a little boy that cooks with his dad, but he's also really worried, will the kids accept his food? Will they accept him? You know, in this book, 40 Words for Love, there's literal longing for home. There are the people of Golub who had to flee catastrophe who want to go back. And then there's the people who are local who've seen their town disintegrate, who wanted to go back to the home they knew. And so while my stories are very different, I've written fantasy, I've written middle grade, I've written so many different. I think this, this longing for home, longing for belonging um, is a common thread that finds different iterations within each story that I tell. Yeah. Um, we mentioned Raf's story about his like second generation burden, but you know, your other main character, Yaz, her family's going through economic hardship because you know they run a an air not Airbnb, they run a bread and breakfast in a tourist town that has lost its main tourist attraction and has lost its, you know, it's a company town that's lost its company and so has fallen to hard times. And so her father needs to travel out to like get a retail job. Um can you talk to us a little about the inspirations for that aspect of this town that's in catastrophe because of multiple things happening at the same time, like economically? Yeah. So and so with so with Roth's story, it's um, very, you know, clear cut second gen, um, Im- like immigrant story. With Yas's story, I was kind of exploring what it's like when your community collapses and you're, you know, what, what you do to survive. And <clears throat> so, like you said, her father takes a job in another town. And that was inspired by my own life um, when I was in high school. My father lost his job and times were really tight for people who were electrical engineers. It was a recession happening and we were on the brink of losing our home. And my dad had to take whatever jobs he could to put food on the table and my mom too. And it really, you know, it took something that I thought was so certain. My dad works at the power company and that's what he does. And it'll always be that way forevermore. And suddenly everything was thrown into um, question. Suddenly the home I'd lived in, it was no longer guaranteed to always be our home. So much changed overnight for my family. And um, and so I think I did explore a bit of that within this story, how hard it is, how as a teen, you, you, you know, you want to be supportive, but, but, but doing the, the, seeing your parents go through that struggle 
It makes you tamp down your own dreams, your own things that you're dealing with, like while you're trying to be supportive. And so, um, so yeah, so Yaz's story, I feel like explores a lot more about the grief side of things and losing faith and, you know, that things, things always worked out for Yaz and now suddenly nothing's working out. And, and how do you make sense of that? And how do you move forward? And it was really interesting to write this. Um, a lot of this was written during the pandemic, my revisions and when all of us were facing things like that, when suddenly everything that felt so certain became uncertain, when we didn't know if we could go to the grocery store or not, or we were washing our groceries in the sink and, you know, quarantining our mail and everything, everything turned on its head. And so it was interesting to write a story that does talk about grief and uncertainty during a time that not only me, but the entire world was going through grief and uncertainty. I feel like we're constantly going through grief and uncertainty, especially yes. with all the layoffs that have been happening at these big companies and just like our planet being a boiling pot, just like so many things that are so uncertain. Yeah. Well, it's a beautifully written book. Um, I really love just the imagery of like a pink ocean, just it just jumps off the page for me. So congratulations on the book. Um, it's out August 22nd, which means by the time you're listening to this, it's already out in bookstores everywhere. Um, I guess you, you're, you're probably busy with promoting the book on your, you know, whatever book tour you're doing. But are you working on anything else right now? You're, you seem to be a pretty prolific author. So I'm sure you have plenty of <laughs> projects in the in the pipe. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I... Um Right as we were gearing up to do, you know, get ready for travel and to do book launches, I broke my leg at a national park. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it was interesting because I was talking to my orthopedic surgeon. I said, wait, does that mean I can't go to the National Book Festival? And he's like, no, you cannot go to the National Book (laughs) Festival with a broken leg. So um, so unfortunately, it has really, you know, limited my opportunities to get the word out there for the book. So I am really grateful to speak to you and to, you know, to be able to have this avenue to to have listeners hear about this story and and, uh, to get the word out. Um, One, I guess, I would not wish a broken leg on myself or anybody, but one side effect is I sit a lot. (laughs) And after you've binged enough television, you're ready to do something else. And I can still type even with a broken leg. And so I have been busy working and, uh, I'm currently working on the third in um, Amal Unbound has uh, the Amal Unbound world. I'm writing a story about Amal's other best friend, Hafsa. I wrote Umar Rising, which was about one of her best friends, Hafsa. Hafsa was another one of her friends. So I'm writing that story, a middle grade, and I'm finishing up the finishing touches of a picture book that's going to be coming out next year. So I continue in my very varied age range um, storytelling um, to come. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba and talking about your new book. Um, good luck with uh, book launch. Um, and thank you. Hope you. Recover from your broken leg. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's such a joy to talk to both of you. Thank you. Yeah. And that was Aisha Saeed. Her latest novel, Forty Words for Love, is available now at bookstores everywhere, um, including the Books and Boba Bookshop. Um, as always, any purchase made on our online bookstore will help not only your local bookstores but also books and bubble podcasts as well and another reminder that you can also support books and bubble by joining our patreon at patreon.com slash books and bubble where again you have access to our exclusive members only discord server um, as well as our monthly bonus episodes Um, before we go 
Um, Rira, can you remind us what we are reading for the month of August? We are reading Bitter Medicine by Mia Sai, and it is a Shansha inspired contemporary fantasy about a Chinese immortal and a French elf as they navigate romance, family loyalty, and workplace demands. Yeah, it's a fun book. Um, I did not realize that it was like a romance romance because there are a couple very steamy scenes in the book. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't gotten that far yet. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, just, I did just, not expect that. <laughs> just a heads up. There, there are a couple, more than one scene where where, where they're doing the deed. Um, but yeah, that'll do it for this episode, folks. And Boba, thank you once again to Aisha for joining us. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.